Hi everyone and welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. I started this podcast for a very simple reason. You can find podcasts on pretty much any topic, but I wasn't aware of any that were focused on public service leaders. So rather than wait for somebody else to do it, I decided to give it a try. I wanted to give public service leaders a platform to tell their stories, to talk about the reforms and innovations they put in place, and to share lessons in leadership. I think this will be particularly interesting for current and future public service leaders, but a lot of the lessons are more broadly applicable. So I hope you enjoy it, and please remember to register on the website to never miss a future episode. This week I speak to Sophie Humphreys. Sophie is a radical reformer in the truest sense of the word. She is the founder or co-founder of a number of public service programs which support extremely vulnerable and hard to reach people, whether that's young people who have got themselves into a cycle of reoffending or women who have had multiple babies removed into care. Sophie's overarching philosophy is that with the right amount of intensive effort and support, you can break those cycles. So if you're interested in designing public policy to help the most vulnerable, or if you're working closer to the front line and want some practical advice on how to implement programs which actually work, then this is definitely for you. Sophie, you're very welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. We obviously know each other quite well, but for the listeners, it would be great if you could just briefly introduce yourself. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, no, it's really exciting to be doing this today as well. Um, yeah, so my background is it's predominantly in social work, certainly in relation to what we're talking about today. I trained as a um, social worker and worked in child protection and eventually running child protection services in Hackney. Um, but I just want to go back a little bit from that because I think it's kind of relevant. Um, I don't want to leave out sort of half my life in some ways and a career <laughs> I had before that. Um, is I worked before I went into social work and kind of retrained, which I did when my, my children were young, is I used to be a producer um, working in film production, predominantly making commercials. Um, and for me, bringing those two worlds together has always been something that um, has been quite important to me. So hopefully we'll talk I, about that a bit further on. I don't think I knew that. That's really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yes, yeah, so I came into social work and um, and through my time, I suppose, in, it was in Hackney that I was running the child protection service there and also got involved in um, setting up the Safeguarding Children's Board. So what was the local Safeguarding Board? And um, sort of took on quite a new role there, which was sort of set up, which was kind of a professional advisor role. So as well as sort of running the service, I acted as a sort of expert or an advisor to all the kind of key agencies across the local authority around child protection. So that would be in the um, sort of borough commando with the police, chief exec of the local um, hospital, which at that point was the Homerton and obviously with social care and education. So that was kind of where I suppose my time and my sort of launch into this world and, and what I do now came from. And then I subsequently left Hackney having set up PAWS, um, which I know we're going to talk about, but set up a pilot in Hackney and then that sort of grew and, and I sort of moved on from Hackney to, to grow that, which yeah. I then did. I also, in the background and alongside that, um, and continues to do now, do sort of expert work for government. Um, I've done sort of reviews 
for uh, the previous children minister on child sexual exploitation. Um, and I still do um, serious case reviews and I'm part of the pool for the sort of national national reviews. So I do a number of things. I'm a trustee, well, not trustee, sorry, board member at CAFCAS um, and involved in a school as a school governor. So, yeah, well, keep my hand in. Yeah, You're busy. You're very busy. You mentioned pause there, there, Sophie, and I want to get right into that because I know that there is a lot of interest in it. Can you tell us exactly what pause is? Yeah, so pause kind of came out of that work I was talking about um, originally in Hackney. And, and for a period of that time, well, actually for five years of that time, I worked at the Homerton Hospital, um, running the uh, team there, the child protection team. And one of the things that became very evident to me um, and colleagues I was working with at the time was about that many of the issues we were coming across, although they had to be dealt with and reacted to at that point, because children were usually um, at risk right then, is that actually they were part of bigger cycles. So pause, I was working at that point actually with a colleague called George, uh, Georgina, and she actually ran a sexual health service working with women who were um, street sex workers. And what we and others were beginning to see was that the women she was bringing to us um, or referring because they were pregnant, we were then in the act of sort of having to remove their children. And although we could all see this was the right thing to do for that child then, very little was being done to think about how do we stop that woman appearing again a year later, still in the same circumstances, still incredibly vulnerable, and really very little happened in between once the child is out of her care. Um, and so I think that's where I started working with other, I started collecting actually, it was a while before we started looking at it, I started collecting over a number of years the sort of data about who were the women that were having these multiple births? Who were the children? Who were their fathers? Who? How did it all fit together? And then began to see this really um, strong pattern that they were actually a relatively small number of women, but who were having an you know an exponentially large number of children that were resulting or needing to go into care. So I then worked with Georgina um, Perry, came then to work with us and the local authority. And we did a feasibility study where we looked at what those numbers were. And actually what we found when looking for women who'd had two or more children removed and of an age where they were likely to have further children and likely to have further children removed, we found 49 women who had had 205 children already removed from their care yeah um so from that it was okay so what do we do about it and I suppose I mean Paul's came up as a sort of name during our board meeting I was talking about what is it we actually what is it that needs to happen and actually Paul's named itself because the thing that we kept talking about and was becoming so evident was the need to create a space a space where change could happen where the woman didn't get pregnant and where actually the focus was on them as an individual and as a woman rather just in relation to their presenting issues such as drugs and alcohol, domestic violence, um, sex working, whatever those, you know, often they were many intersecting complexities. Mm. But it was recognising, and this, I mean, this, a lot of this took place when talking to women. It didn't, we didn't yeah. just sort of make it up. 
it was recognizing that actually they've never been had that focus on them not even in their childhood it's always been related to problems many of them having been in care themselves and actually so having a very similar background there as a child as their children were now going on to have so it was about creating that space creating that pause where it wasn't just stopping things and saying, well, stop drugs and alcohol, stop relationships that aren't good. It was in a way the opposite. It was about what can we create to happen in that space that's different and will feel different and also will be something that will enable them to stay involved in that rather than feeling drawn to further pregnancies and, and actually trying to understand what those pregnancies for the women actually represented um was it about having a baby because actually if you've had you know between two and many of the women we've worked with have had you know four five up to sort of 14 babies removed that's a lot of loss and that's a lot of grief for, for them and obviously the subsequent impact on their children so this isn't about really necessarily about a straightforward of just wanting a child and 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 to sort of care for it there's there's something more complex so that's that period that's called created through the pause was to enable them to unpick some of that but also really importantly to have a chance to aspire and actually think about who they are not just who that what their problems are but what do they want for themselves who are they as a woman so you're um, you're, yeah. you're starting to get into to some of the the underlying philosophy of yeah. it now, and this is this sounds like it's really about breaking cycles. So, can you go into a bit more on the underlying philosophy and why that's so important to pause, and why it's why it's a different approach to what uh, the women that you're talking about might have experienced in the system before? Yeah, so I suppose I mean the underlying. I won't go into details. Perhaps I'll talk a bit more in a moment about breaking cycles itself, but. For pause, I suppose what was different and what was the starting point that was so different was about if you're going to break the cycle, you have to change the kind of narrative, the narrative that they hold about themselves, the narrative that their family, friends or whoever else is in their world hold about them. But actually, most importantly, to a certain extent, change the narrative that the professionals that they come into contact with, which is is ample, (laughs) many in many different guises that that narrative change and that people could sort of really reframe how they looked at them. So so often I think about pause as a kind of, it's a bit like a lens. So the woman is a lens that you're looking through at their world. And although the programme is focused, pause is focused on the woman, it's not saying that they haven't got partners or they're not an important part of all this. It's actually recognising that we need to see it through their through their eyes, through live their life, through their perspective on it, and then try and understand how that can shift. So I think that's a really p- important part. So I suppose thinking about ingredients, the breaking cycles ingredients, which I suppose I've articulated post pause, but there's nothing that I would talk about in breaking cycles that's actually any um, different to what we brought in at the beginning, which was really about that intensity that focus time you know really finding the right the time to give them and to spend with people to develop that relationship with a skilled practitioner but also time 
it's you know it's a um, it's a commodity that you can use in many ways. And actually, one of the important things about time is about timeliness and recognizing when is the right time to intervene, when is the right time to have a conversation. So mm. it's you know timing is so important for bringing about change. And so you know if at some point we realized that for many women, the point at which that child was removed wasn't always in the hospital. It's not always at the time when they're, uh, you know, they may have had children living with them for two or three years and then something occurs and then those children all go into care. But it's often at that point that actually they're at their most vulnerable and actually most open sometimes to uh, engaging and being engaged with, more importantly, actually it's our job as professionals to do that. So I think, you know, that's the sort of core under the model is that recognition that without time, focus and a skilled person to do that with you, it's very hard to bring about that change. You mentioned earlier that a lot of professionals would be involved because obviously the women that you're talking about have complex needs and challenges and there would be a lot of different agencies involved and a lot of different professionals all probably doing their best individually but perhaps not knowing what yeah. everyone else was doing how, how did pause bring some of that together well, I think the shift that took place was in a way that what Paul's the model it worked and used in relation to the women it worked with it kind of also applied that in everything it did so it recognized that often you need to go alongside people you need to show them you need to kind of it's a bit like a relay race where you kind of start off running together and then slowly as as someone picks up pace then they then run with that baton so that was definitely relevant for women but actually also for the professionals that work with them they got stuck they tried all their it wasn't for lack of uh, wanting to or but because of the work they did and often in very kind of siloed um, agendas so an agency that's working with people with drug and alcohol problem their their focus is around drugs and alcohol mm. and they many of the professionals we work with once you start having conversations with them they knew this was far more complex they absolutely know this is the big picture needed something different but it wasn't something that was easy for them to do and and I think that for some professionals let's say housing officers you know they're so used to these women becoming really good. They're diff- they can be very difficult when someone's, I, I hate using the word these women, I don't mean it to be kind of derogatory, but people who've had different difficult starts in lives and have had to learn ways to survive against trauma and, and, and many things that they're having to deal with every day, some of their coping mechanisms can actually be instinctually helpful to them, but they're actually not necessarily very helpful. So that's how they might mm-hmm. interact with you as a housing officer which would usually result in them coming in to see you. No one thinking, well, actually, they're coming into the same building where they also came and had the last child protection meeting about their child or or lack of view for a child who's in care. So it was kind of helping those professionals see that you kind of need to change the context physically and the sort of narrative around it. And actually, maybe you can go meet them somewhere. Maybe it's finding a neutral ground. Maybe it's understanding that the reason they perhaps will kick off and get very sort of what might seem quite aggressive or storm out and things is they can't regulate themselves. They find it very hard to manage those situations because it, 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 um, 
generates too many emotions, which are, are very difficult to to manage. And when they get frustrated, and let's face it, we've all been frustrated by local authorities or council processes or the bureaucracy, you know, on a daily I, basis. Yeah, you couldn't possibly comment there. Yeah. Sophia. yeah. <laughs> You've never had those problems. Oh, no, never, never. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think so. I think it was recognizing that actually we also, as professionals, can shift and change the way we respond. And it's a bit like a dance, really. You know, you start to get in step and then suddenly, actually, you start being able to sort of move forward. This is about giving professionals time as well, isn't it? So in the old world, you know, where you've got individuals working in different agencies with a big caseload, they, they can just about do, they have time to do just about the bare minimum with each person before saying, right, I've done my bit. And this feels very much like a fundamental change where the pause practitioners have time to spend time really understand what the problems are and this this goes back to some of the stuff hillary cosm's radical help yeah uh, absolutely which, which pause is is referenced quite heavily and yeah. um just about the ability to try something and if that doesn't work mm. try something else and know, i think that's take time yeah. So I think that brings in the sort of, you know, the other sort of breaking cycles ingredients is one of them is about this tailor, you know, tailor the interactions. And so they're flexible, recognize that you have to see each person as an individual. And although they may all have something in common, some of the people you're working with, that doesn't define them. And it also doesn't tell you how to work, which I think many of the models that we create in the in sort of um public services are kind of based on the sort of this is the model you use to work with people with drug problems or this is the what you use to for people who are in domestic violence or whatever it might be and actually there's a i think that's fundamentally flawed if it doesn't take into account of course there are going to be some things which you know whether it's how you use methadone or whatever but i think the importance of starting with the person and changing where you start, so start with the person, not the problem, is going to give you a much better clue as to how to try, what you need to try. And I think, you know, the, the key ingredient that we certainly did talk about, pause to a certain extent, and certainly I'm now using much more in, in, in trying to sort of articulate this work, is about finding the hook. What is the thing that enables that door to open what is the thing on it that this will change and this will change on a daily daily basis you know that first point in the meeting with a woman or we'll stick with pause for now when you know with a woman who has lost trust lost confidence um has hit rock bottom you have to recognize that you have to persist you have to be tenacious um you don't give up just because it fails the first time you keep trying those different ways. Yeah. But all the time, what you're looking for is what I would call the hook, because it's the thing that will enable them. It's what enables, I think, most of us to carry out many of the things we do every day is if it engages us, if it's interesting, if it gets us to somewhere we need to be. And often it might not relate directly to the issue of having children removed, but what it might do is be a way to uh, yeah, open that door and for that relationship, which is ultimately what you're trying to build, is a relationship which will then enable them to grow and, and mend and, and, and build some of those foundations they didn't have. So I think, you know, that and then the, the final kind of ingredient around investment of time 
and investing time because none of those things we've we've talked about can you do if you don't have time yeah and that's exactly the same as the housing officer you've got to take the time to rather than get irritated by what you perceive as a rude response or um grumpy email go down and see them go and talk to them you know take a cup of coffee whatever it is what we do when we're trying to you know make things work with 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 people generally so part of the way of creating that time is the contraception element of it which is potentially quite controversial have have you been challenged on that element of it and what's your response to that yeah i mean on the the conception i mean again sort of going back to why pause is called pause you know it was recognizing that the the people we're working with at pause are women and if they're not then we're working with the wrong women the women we work with at pause are in a very really quite prolific cycle of getting pregnant and usually resulting in pregnancies where children get removed, but probably for nearly every pregnancy where a child gets removed, there may, may well have been a miscarriage, a termination. So it's recognising that this is something that's happening at a great frequency. And once we understood that the thing that we, the hypothesis that what was going to make a difference was a time to focus on them, not be caught up in child protection procedures or in a fight and flight kind of court cases and when actually the focus isn't on them it's on the child which is the right thing but it's not going to help that woman um, move from a place of of vulnerability to one of strength and being in control so we then started thinking what helps someone get control of that how do you take control of your life how do women take control and space pregnancies and decide when things happen so they can do the other things that are about the other parts of them in between that yeah. So it was very clear that in a way, well, what's the tools needed when you go into, you know, uh, drug and alcohol rehab, you don't take your drugs with you. You don't take a bottle of gin. Um, actually, in pause, you don't get pregnant. And we need to think what was going to enable that. And we were very clear that contraception um, is, is the thing that enables one not to get pregnant. But we also were very clear from the very beginning that it was very important that it had to be voluntary. This had to be about choice. Because actually, for someone to engage in a programme like this, it has to be because they're at a time in their lives where they actually want to pause. They want help to break that cycle. Um, And actually, if they're not ready and they're really wanting to go on and have another pregnancy, then we're not the right service to support them. Actually, there's there's other um, services. So it's about being straightforward. Because I think for, for many of the women, actually, you know, most social workers, most midwives, most people who come in contact with them do everything they can to try and persuade them to use some sort of contraception. Yeah. And in some ways, you know, you could argue when thinking, I mean, one of the things we've had when there's been any criticism, it's like, well, is this, co- are we coercing them because they're vulnerable? That, you know, you'll get a pro- you'll get this if you do that. But actually, I think they, they deal with coercion on a daily basis. Um, and I think one of the things that they don't perhaps get enough of is people being straightforward and saying look yeah this you know you get pregnant the likelihood is that child will be removed and actually saying things as they are so we felt very confident about the need you know and importance of being straightforward and that actually when this whole idea around contraception and choice so i think yes absolutely there has been criticism and um, we have had our critics Interestingly enough, rarely the women um, and rarely the professionals who actually work in this world directly with the women. 
um, certainly not sexual health practitioners, very few from local authorities, if, if, if any. It's come from more from an academic perspective, which is, I think, quite interesting because it's very, and it's about choice, I suppose. Um, and actually, is it not the choice for these women, the right for them to get pregnant? Well, it absolutely is. But it, it's not a great choice to get pregnant and have a child removed. It's not a great choice to be a child, be born and be removed. So we've done a lot of thinking and, and about what, what's, what is choice? Because actually, I have a choice. Um, most of the people I know, and certainly, you know, my friends and family have a choice about contraception and making that choice. But what became clear when we started speaking to women, that wasn't necessarily a choice. It wasn't that... Yeah. I say quite a middle class kind of construct of of what that's about, about going to a family planning clinic and talking about the different options. Many of the women we work with are in um, are in domestic violent relationships. Actually, the person controlling their fertility often isn't them, but a partner, who often it may well be in their interest for them to be pregnant because it keeps them attached. And actually going to a family planning clinic or going to often at the hospital having to have examinations, internal examinations. Many of the women have been raped or had sexual, um, you know, sexual abuse in, in their, either in their childhood or in their adult years. So we began to realise that, you know, this isn't as straightforward as this, but therefore it is also our responsibility to really spend time with women before they commit fully to really understanding what choice is about and that they really can say no. And it doesn't mean there's no services. And we see it um, at pause as our responsibility. If for a woman it's not the time they want to have a break from pregnancy, that actually we help them get attached and involved and engaged um, with the right services. And yes. we'll spend, spend up 16 weeks doing that. And just to be absolutely clear, it is, it's not imposed, this. It is the participants in the programme volunteer and as I'm sure some have can can leave the program yeah absolutely absolutely no I mean that's really important and I you know be very concerned if that that were ever to be different and that you know there's certainly no no intention in that direction I think that yeah I think I mean that's one of the numbers I, I can't remember the exact numbers but the number of women who have actually given contraception as the reason for not engaging or for leaving is being at, you know, is literally kind of, you know, yeah. count on, on one hand, um, unless that sort of changed over time. But it, it's rarely, you know, we're, we want to be working with people who are at a time when this is what they want. Yeah. Um, so if, if I could just, if I could just ask a few more technical questions, you mentioned gathering the information at the start. So identifying who the women are that Pause wants to to reach out to must require gathering information held in several places. So how how did you manage to do that, and was that easy or? You're talking about data protection. I am. Right? I'm talking about gathering data. <laughs> I can't pretend that's not difficult. It also GDPR is added to that complexity. Yeah. It's really difficult, and we've got very good kind of data sharing protocols, um, very safe systems, ways of anonymizing data. At pause, obviously gathering information about women, not just from files, but you need to talk to people, other professionals who know them, you need to talk to women themselves. And obviously you need permission to do that. And But it's so key because 
if you just deal with anonymized data and you never know who that woman is, you, you just make the same mistakes that we're all making, which is just defining them by their problems rather than really trying to unpick it and, and understand them as an individual. But it, it's really complicated. And I would say to any anyone who's trying to do anything along these lines is that really to get support from other people who've done it. Yeah, so you've got to be able to understand a person's situation in a qualitative way, but you've still got to be able to find them in the first place in yeah, order yeah. To, to have those conversations. Um, if I could just put my finance director hat on, I'm not a finance director, but let's imagine I am for a second. This is probably a new service if a council was to adopt it, and it's probably going to cost. So do, do you, for individual councils, do you put together a uh, I suppose what you might call an invest to save case that you know to roll out pause it will cost you this but having identified this cohort of women who are having repeat removals the cost that that is incurring is significant and therefore it's worth making this investment is is that how the conversation yes goes? absolutely right. I mean I think that was when we first you know when I was first setting up the pilot in Hackney you know the first there are two things you have to have, I believe, for any program like this to really to succeed. Is one, you've got to have a social issue that you can really show the evidence it's a problem and needs um, addressing. You've obviously got to have a model that you believe is going to work, that's convincing. But actually, the most important thing, especially in early stages, you've got to have your cost benefit clear. You've got to be able to show that if we do this, this will save that. And I think it was one of the things we did we did very well um, in the first pilot, and hence, I mean, it actually was initially funded by the local authority or actually through public health money in Hackney. Was we're able to show that actually, for you know, every child that's going into care, um, on average, say sixty thousand pounds per year, and the cost. I'm sorry, these are just estimates. I can't remember the exact figures, but the cost for a woman to be engaged with pause for a year is something between sort of 16 and 18,000. So it's very easy to see the saving and you're not just talking about investing to save way down in the future. You can, you know, you can be looking at right now and certainly yeah. our, our, our latest evaluation, which will be published soon, has shown as a fantastic graph I've seen, which shows that, you know, local authorities that have a pause and local authorities that don't have a pause there's a you know the the reduction in number of children going into care when everything else being being equal. So, you know, children not going into care saves money. Yeah. And so I think whatever it is you're setting up, you've absolutely you can't not focus on the cost benefit. You've got to yeah. kind of get that. You kind of got to get that first because um, good things don't just get done because they're good. So it would be interesting to talk a little bit about the structure of pause because. I know there's a national organisation and then individual councils have their own practices. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yes, I suppose. Oops, sorry. You may have heard There's my the dog, dog in the background. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's seeing something out the window that he thinks is um, hostile. <laughs> I mean, I the word I use, but it may not be a correct word because I'm not a, a predominantly a sort of business person, but it's more like a sort of social franchise. Yeah, um, yeah no, it is. And so... I think the thing that's enabled pause to scale and spread was actually getting that model right at the beginning and recognising that you've got to, it's a balance between 
autonomy and control and yeah. about enabling local authorities to and it's not just local authorities some of the pauses are actually run out of uh, first sector organizations like Bernardo's or just more localized ones but the local authority are key part of the of this but what is what is really important is that it feels like theirs it, it belongs to them it's not a manualized approach where you kind of pay a license and you then something gets kind of you kind of nearly order it ready made the whole idea about this is that you apply those kind of similar ingredients about flexibility tailoring it to suit that local area because every local area like every person is different and the needs are different and um, so although the core is really important and we've always been really clear there are certain things that really matter to make pause pause one of them being those ingredients of time and flexibility one of them being around contraception to enable that space to take place, but actually also not having too many rules and regulations so that actually allows people to practice. This is this is all about practitioners doing what they mm. do well. So it's setting out, we call it a framework at Pools. We have a Pools framework which sets out what are the kind of key elements that you know you need. And then we have a national organisation, which is our charity, which is a charitable organisation or registered charity. Do you know off the top of your head how many practices there are? I do. I do. I know exactly, actually, isn't it, this minute, because I was asking that the other day. There were 23 practices across 30 local authorities. Mm. And we've got a further 13 local authorities coming board this year. So that will be 43 local authorities that have a pause providing a service. Excellent. Um, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it, it, it requires to, to get this done, it requires the support and engagement of both national policymakers, but also also councils. So we we talked about councils and it's very much about explaining the philosophy and making the business case, etc. But at the national level. So so PAUSE has had support from the Department for Education through the innovation programme. And how important was that support in terms of giving the programme credibility or a boost no no i mean it's been incredible as a boost i mean from a financial point of view it was absolutely instrumental so the first pilot as i said was, was already um funded through in hackney itself but that obviously what was great about that it meant we had some evidence so we were able to go in quite with quite a strong bid to the innovation fund at the dfe on the basis um so funding them for 18 months but on the basis that they would then um become sustainable and i'm pleased to say all of those that were funded through that mechanism are now fully sustained locally um but because they had the evidence to show that they you know it, it, it was saving them money and bringing reducing other children going to care as well as good outcomes for women then a lot of the others i'd say slowly as it's grown the majority of that has come through some philanthropic funding, but mostly through local authorities now having seen others do it and recognise that actually it's, it's a good investment of their money. So but, at, a national, at a national level then, did you find that the system, inverted commas, worked with you to get this yeah, done? Yeah, I think on the whole, I would say absolutely. I mean, I think some people, and I think that's, you know, again, sort of credit to DfE at, at that time. And I think the children's minister who was in post and those people, civil servants is around at that time as well. You know, people took some, they had to kind of take a bit of a leap in a way, more than a leap of faith, but certainly have to recognise something that was quite complex. Because ultimately we work with women, not children. And we were looking for funding that was coming from the DfE and children's services. But yeah. there was a real understanding of that 
cycle and actually the transgenerational nature and that these women were those children and those children will become the women that we work with in the well, future. The DfE obviously recognises the pressure that, that children's social care is under. This is very much about supporting local areas. Paul's is obviously in a really good place now and it's been a remarkable success story as a social enterprise as well but during that journey to get to this point can you think of any any mistakes you made or things that you would have done that you would have done differently I think I mean you did mention you might ask a question along these lines and I have to (laughs) and I hate to be somebody who'd say we haven't made any mistakes I think the thing that's been really reassuring is that the belief at the beginning of pause was that it should be led by practice and by practitioners expertise and knowledge and therefore that has shaped pause and that's made it what it is today I think the biggest struggle is trying to not let systems and processes and bureaucracy come in and start to wag the dot you know it's like how you keep that so I suppose in a way of the model and in the way of the kind of scaling model I would say that it's it's pretty much followed and the you know our hunch or our hypothesis or our, you know ex- expertise whatever what was good i think the thing that i would say in a way was the it's the temptation to drop down on some of your standards and things so whether that might be so recruitment really is what pause yeah. wouldn't exist without good people and the recruitment at local authority level, one of the things we always clear from the beginning was that it needs to go out as an external advert. It needs to obviously involve, it goes locally and it goes within that organisation, but never to get caught up into only being able to take from a pool, whether it's a redeployment pool, you know, no disrespect, often very good people. And we may well have practitioners from many of these sources or just to go internally. And there's a few times where that has been through negotiation and perhaps hunger to make it work that hasn't been stuck to and yeah and and I kind of you know you thought this is not going to work and then over time and those ones have come back and they bite you I I would completely agree getting the right people for something that requires people to think very differently than they previously thought in their organizational or professional silo is really important and I know that your recruitment process it is quite intensive and it's about getting people who really who really get it rather than just the people who happen to be available yeah and I think you know when we that's right and when we first set up the first 12 Paul's practices Georgina um, and I between us one or other us were on every single recruitment panel yeah. And at the moment, I know at pause, they still continue that, that one of the national pause practitioners who are within the organisation are involved in all those recruitment. Yeah. And I think occasionally where that may have dropped or for just purely out of, you know, logistics, I, I think that's been, been, you know, is a risk. So I think, I suppose for me, it's like sticking to your guns, not getting seduced into things. And, and you know, we definitely have on occasions. I think the contraception thing, I think there is something that. I mean, I don't mind a bit of controversy and I think anything you're doing is going to be a bit, you know, anything you're doing to bring about change, there's always going to be elements of it that if it's pleasing everybody, it's probably not going to do the job. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that that point, as well as as well as getting the right people, it's sticking to the principles and the fundamentals of it, because as the pause family of pause practices get gets bigger, you know, things can slip and it can become a bit more practical and a yeah. bit give and take. 
where actually if you know very deep down, yeah. So I, I want to leave uh, pause for now if that's okay. But um, you've mentioned you haven't called you haven't given it its name yet. But you've mentioned another program that you're you're working on now. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about that a little bit because it, it also is uh, very much embedded in the breaking the cycles philosophy. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, when I started working on pause, I suppose I never saw it in isolation. Is that this is this one cycle we have to break. It's connected to many other cycles and actually it's an entrenched pattern of behaviour that you can see that replicates across generations as well as um, across communities. So I was always interested in what other cycles there were that caused people such really such unhappiness and pain, but also had such a bad impact on on them, their children and society. So started sort of articulating those ingredients um, into what is now I call the breaking cycles model, um, which has those five key ingredients which we've we've talked about, um, and then thinking where else could that that be applied. And along that time, I was working with some other colleagues who uh, one of them, Josh McAllister, who set up Frontline, and someone called Rebecca uh, Rebecca Kramer, who set up a school called Reach Academy, um, and Michael Clark from Arc, as I better name them. Um, we were all talking together about and very keen to look at the cycle around young people caught in criminal behaviour, whether that be on the edges of it or right in the depths of it, sort of working to county lines. Um, clearly, very young, vulnerable. But also people who are, you know, consequently could be causing great harm, um, including people being killed. So we were keen to look at whether the breaking cycles ingredients, and which I now worked up into a bit more of a kind of theoretical model, could we do that to work with children, young people who are committing crime, so that instead they would make a positive contribution to society and, and basically build better lives themselves. So the model, I mean, the model in many ways is very similar to Paul's, although it's very different because we're working in a very different way. We're only just starting now with our first two pilots. But it's very much back to that thing of not defining, you know, it's using those ingredients about not defining somebody by their problems, about identifying the hook. What is the hook for a young person? Um, The program, have I said it's called Whatever It Takes yet? No, you haven't. Not yet. Okay, well, it's called whatever I'll reveal it, it now. Yeah. It's called whatever it takes. Um, yeah. Basically, on the basis that we will do whatever it takes to enable that young person to go from a place of clearly causing harm to themselves and others to a place of strength and and to aspiration and, and having a you know a sort of fruitful life. So. I mean, so WIT is, we call it WIT, um, which is obviously, it's not just an acronym because I hate acronyms. I've got, anyone who knows me knows I've got a complete and utter problem with acronyms. But WIT actually really talks about what that is. It's about young people having that WIT, being able to help them bring about that change. So it will work with using those ingredients, identifying that hook. What What is it that for that young person is going to, be perhaps as interesting or as alluring or seductive as many of the people who are out there grooming them for criminal exploitation, sexual exploitation and and, and more and county lines, etc. So it's again having a really skilled practitioner at WIT, we call them guides, because we think it's it, it is that very much guiding young people at a stage when actually their lives are about separating from from attachment, separating and having independence. Unfortunately, for many of them, 
they haven't had those foundations or those roots or those, that modelling that perhaps might have enabled them to be stronger. Um, and that's not the case for everyone. Some of them it is just the the allure of it from, you know, and the sort of peer pressure. And it's very seductive. You know, county lines, you can be only 200 quid a day, um, you know, and getting lunch breaks and, you know, nearly getting sick pay. It's, it's a whole world that... So we've got to compete with that. So the guides um, at WIT, again, like PAWS, the PAWS practitioners have got to be exceptionally good at what they do. And they've got to be able to apply all of those principles of being able to tailor every single interaction to that young person. They've got to invest time and they've got to be be robust. They've got to recognise that, again, you know, we do deal with this a lot also with, with PAWS, where people who have learned to protect themselves and, and actually don't that can manifest in a way that means they they push you away and actually you have to persist um, and, and be tenacious. And then really importantly, identify the right moment. So with wit, we will work with young people who are they could be anywhere between 12 and you know we're gonna even look across up to sort of 20, you know, 21, 22 where they are at a point where they're ready or or looking for support. And often, you know, we spent a lot of time now going around all the sort of young offenders institutes, um, talking to young people, local authorities, yacht teams. And what becomes really clear is that there's a point when they're on their own, they're in a van between the court and the custody centre, wherever they might be being taken. And you suddenly have a child again. You have a child who's vulnerable, wants their mum. And actually it's recognising that sometimes that for them, not for every child or every young person, that made the time to intervene. For another, it may be they'd been on remand. We'd work with them whether they're, again, like Paul's, the flexibility, we will work with them whether they're in prison, out of prison, whether they're um, in prisons. Not, well, they are prisons really, aren't they? No, there's no pretending otherwise. But we will work with them in the community, we'll work with their family, we'll work with the gangs they're involved in. The aim is to try and change that narrative again, change that story, change the context. And really important, I think, with young people is for them to, again, not to be all about their problems, but to actually give them the opportunity to aspire. What, What do you hope for? What is that? And actually really work alongside the other professionals, whether it's education, whether it's workplace, to really try and make that happen. Um, and uh, and yeah. how do you identify the the young people to work with through WIT? Well, so we're just going through this process now. So our first two local authorities in, in London that are going to be piloting the programme from, well, from September, we've been going through the identification, we call it scoping, um, same as we call it a pause, where you start off by looking at local authority data. So it's a bit easier than pause on one level because actually the women weren't, women on pause, it was their children's files you were having to identify the women through. For whatever it takes, um, these are people known to young offenders teams. So we're working really closely with the young offenders teams, yachts in the local authorities. It's not to sort of say what they do is bad and we're going to do something better. It's like saying we recognise that you've probably got 10 to 20 young people that you just, you know, the system is set up. So you just can't, you know, you're so caught up with all the sort of processes and just the numbers. We will, they will say, right, we've got, you know, 20 kids or 20 young people. Those will be the ones we'll work with. They're the people who keep them up at night most. So we'll identify them through data. 
through talking to practitioners and uh, youth offending workers, talking to schools, talking to alternative provisions. Who are the young people who you're most worried about, who you just don't ever see? A&E, who comes in with stab wounds, etc. Police, uh, you know, county yeah. line. Um, and you build a picture. It's exactly what we did at Pause. And we'll identify those young people and then we will do whatever it takes. And it will be really hard because uh, it's, yeah. you know, it's a hard job just, and it's just a, a hard time. Yeah, I mean, just so one more question on this, and then I, I, I want to talk about a couple of other things in, in the time we've got. But uh, the guides, what levers do they have that they can pull? Because I, I imagine it needs to be quite a an appealing offer to be 200 quid a day and, you know, whatever else comes with that. Well, they won't be they won't be able to give people 200 quid a day to compete. That's for sure. It's certainly, you know, the hook can't be a bribe, but it can be incentive. And I think that interestingly enough what you find is that yeah the 200 pounds a day is hard to be introduction but actually underneath that these kids are get you know in scary circumstances actually they're not having good lives you know they might be momentarily in periods so it, it, it's about you know the guides will have to elicit what the hook is for each child and it will be different and in a way that's their skill but they will like pause we had a certain amount of you know there was funding to be able to kind of think outside the box for each with each woman so if there's a young person who's really interested and this is a bit stereotyped but really interested in learning you know to play the bass guitar or whatever you don't have to sort of enroll them on a class they're never going to turn up to because it's just sort of they're just not in that place yet you can you know you can pay for a one-to-one or you can and they have to use their you know it's not about just about finances it's about recognizing it maybe you know they've never had contact with their dad and actually that's something that underlies so much of their loss and and, and feelings yeah or actually yeah. they're living in a household where there's domestic violence and that under you know so the hook yeah. is very complex and actually it's literally different on every day it should be applied continuously the hook can be the cup of tea or the coffee or the burger that gets you out of bed whereas in the next day it could be something much more what seems much more fundamental like having contact with your lost a sibling who's in care or something so that's about skill and knowing how to elicit yeah. that and then how to apply it um is key all, all of this just reinforces the that it's down to the quality of the guide or in pause's case the the pause practitioner so um just moving away from for a second just what other things because it sounds like you're you're working your way through the toughest problems that are are out there really so what else could the breaking cycles philosophy be applied to well to be honest with you, i think it's you know i suppose my is it ambition i'm not sure that's the right word ambition for sort of change and and, and passion to bring change is about actually that we have to rethink public services we have to rethink about design and really start from a different place which is about people and I know we say we do and we talk about that but then when you look at it all our government departments are actually divided by issues and subjects not people um, so I think we have to really challenge that we have to challenge yes. society so I think that's one of my ambitions is actually to break you know in a way that societal it's not just about the people who have issues it's actually how we in you know we all have issues let's face it um you know it's about how we behave in our professional capacity and how we what the policy looks like and how we construct services 
But I think that if you're looking at it at the sort of, you know, literal level of, of problems, you know, look at the adults, you know, the women we work with at Paul's are the mothers, the girlfriends, the partners of many of the young people at WIT, whether now or that in the future. Their children are those. And and we're not just going to be working, it's not just boys either. We will be working with, you know, girls. It doesn't, girls are part of this. And it's recognising you can't sort of say, you can't sort of make one fits all. You've got to recognise that it's always nuanced. It's always, there's always anomalies. And you have to set up a system that enables this. Adult prisons, you know, that's, you could say males in prisons who go in and out and in and out. Women who are on remand, you know, the, the number of women I sit on a uh, ministerial advisory board for female offenders and you know you've got women who are literally in and out in and out multiple times a year for two weeks you know, what is the point in that you know yeah. so I think this could really easily There's be applied in those settings yeah. homelessness yeah. you know where people are stuck in a cycle when it's not really yes obviously some of it's by finance and about homes but actually just solving a housing crisis isn't going to solve half the problems for the people um, yeah. Because no one's got down to know who is it, why are they homeless, what was that about, and that that is what this is about. What has caught someone in this pattern? So I want to talk a little bit now about pause and wit and the model that they're delivered through. So both of them will largely use a third sector model with the public sector as a commissioner of the services. Does it matter where it's delivered? No, I mean I think that. I mean, actually, sorry, I'm sort of correcting a bit on pause is that actually they are predominantly delivered by the local authority, but the but the overall organisation, pause, is a charity. I, I mean, I feel quite strongly that we shouldn't see, I mean, I've just described pause as a charity, but I wouldn't. It's an organisation that has charity charitable status. And I think that we get too caught up in defining whether something's a charity or it's public sector. Um, and I think really... All that should differentiate really is about funding streams because the reason you yeah. become a charity is, is what then enables you to access certain funding. And I think that there's a lot of history, and maybe I'm being a bit biased because I've worked in local authorities and sort of public sector. I mean, I my ambition would be more to influence, work alongside, and actually that this work predominantly be seen. It's it's public, this, this work has to happen. And I think it should be a public service. Yeah. Um, whether some of that's delivered through an organisation that happens to have charitable status or not, or whether it's directly delivered, I don't think that matters. I think what matters is it's, it's whichever organisation it is. And that even a public local authority, it's an organisation. It's still an organisation that has people. And it's about standards. And actually, they should be the same whether you're in a local authority in a public service or whether it's an organisation that's, that's registered as a charity because I think sometimes one can end up seeing this divide between the two and it's nearly like the local authorities kind of really, in my experience of it, certainly in sort of uh, child protection side of things, you could say had the hard, you know, really had the hard end of it. Now having been involved in something that is a charity, um, I've slightly changed, I've recognised that isn't quite true and I had to, I was a bit biased at that point. Um, and I thank Jules, our chief of debt now, of course, for we, we need to have good debates about this. And I think, you know, I've, I've seen it slightly differently. But I do think it's really important that we think about standards first. We think about what's the best way to get us what we need. 
if that means registering as a charity because it's going to bring in great philanthropic funds or it's going to make us eligible for certain um, trusts and foundations, well, that's a good reason. But actually, we should never lose the emphasis or the expectation on the, I'd say, the government, on our country to provide these as public services because everybody yeah. needs this support. Um, and it's not on the edge, this. The work I'm talking about and the work I'm interested in and these cycles that I'm involved in, these are not, you know, this is not the the value you added. This is stuff that people's lives are at stake and yeah. people, you know, will die without. So we have to see it as core business. So you, you have no truck with any of the philosophical or ideological, sorry is the word, ideological objections to things not being delivered within the public sector it's it's wherever it can be delivered best well i suppose if i started thinking about politics too much i might end up going towards more i believe it should be delivered by the public sector but if i'm thinking about from a pragmatist who wants to get things done and taking off any sort of political hat of my own then i would say what we've got to do what works but in doing that not have the risk of just because something's being done well elsewhere of destroying the foundations of public yeah. services. So I suppose I would be concerned by that. Yeah. Um, and I think that, but I think you also have to have flexibility. If you apply these ingredients in the thinking as well, you know, then it's about tailoring things to suit the product, yeah. what it is you're doing, and about, you know, being clear that it, the one fit doesn't work for everything. And one must always yeah. bear that in mind, really. Great. So I've got one more question. What bit of advice would you give to someone working in the public sector or in a charity or a social enterprise? What advice would you give them if they want to make the sort of impact that you've been able to? Well, I think it goes back to those sort of we were talking earlier about what are the things that enable a program to get off the ground. I mean, firstly, you've got to really be clear about what it is you want to do. And you've got to have a you've got to be able to say what it is you want to do, although I've taken nearly an hour, but you've got to be able to say what it is what you want to do about a program in one sentence. It's got to be that clear and it's got to be compelling. Um, so that to me is all about communication. Your communication has got to be really clear, really sharp. And branding, you know, you've got to you've got to not just communicate that from a uh from your words, but you've also got it's got to look you've got to be able to see it see it on one page and all of that come across and you've got to do that in a way that's going to pull people in or hook them in but I think alongside that you can't have those two and not have worked out your financial benefit yeah and I don't believe you know when people say all oh, those things that sometimes don't have a financial benefit I don't think there's anything that if it does good and brings about change for vulnerable people it cannot not save money You've just got to work hard to get it and articulate that. Yeah, fantastic. Sophie, it's been a really enjoyable conversation and thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you, Andrew. I enjoyed it very much. Well, I don't know about you, but I certainly learned a huge amount from that conversation. I think the main takeaways for me were if you're going to successfully break the cycle that some of these vulnerable people are caught in, it takes such sustained determination from a really skilled person who's prepared to invest a huge amount to really understand the problem and also to be prepared to keep trying and bearing in mind that the people engaged in these programs will be used to dealing with public services and will probably have a long history of feeling let down and misunderstood by them 
As a final takeaway, I think for anyone who is trying to design or implement a program that they hope will be taken up widely, you need to consider the friction between the fidelity of your original model and your understandable desire to try and hold to that, and the fact that every local area is unique with its own priorities and challenges, and they will have their own way of doing things. So the skill is in realizing the right balance between sticking to your model and adapting to local needs and ways of working. So thank you very much for your time, and please do register on the website to make sure you never miss an episode in the future.